If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast in which we at Glass Tire talk about topical art topics. So this is a conversation that I've been wanting to have for a long time. Um, It's kind of a perpetually relevant conversation. Uh, I initially thought about inviting this guest back uh, when uh, a book was released documenting Houston's uh, artist-run nonprofit spaces. That was earlier this year. And uh, he also recently took up a position, or maybe less recently now, but still recent in the grand scheme of things, uh, took up a position as the curator of The Orange Show in Houston. Uh, So with that, let's welcome Pete Gershon to the podcast. Uh, Pete, for anyone who's unfamiliar with you or your history or kind of what you're doing around Houston, give us a background. Well, uh, thanks, Brandon, for having me. It's great to be back on Art Dirt after several years. And I'm Pete Gershon. I'm a writer and researcher and roustabout and uh, now the curator of programs, as you mentioned, at the Orange Show Center for Visionary Art. So uh, you moved to Houston when? Uh, like it's been 20 years now. So now I, I think I've lived longer in Houston than any other place I've ever lived at this point. Wow. For some reason, I didn't think 20 because you moved from what was it? Was it Michigan? Burlington, Vermont. Vermont. Wow. I was way off. Um, OK, well, that that connects to a program that just happened at the Orange Show, which we'll we'll get to in a second. But you moved here and I feel like you know you worked for the core program uh, at the MFAH, the Museum of Fine Arts Houston, for a while. And I got to know you a little bit through that. But I think even before I got to know you in person, I got to know you as the author of Painting the Town Orange, which so for a little bit of context, Pete is a writer, a historian, has kind of become the unofficial art historian of Houston, um, which I I kind of like that it's a transplant to Texas. I mean, a- after 20 years, you know, you're kind of a Texan, but I think unless you're born here, your people always think of you as a transplant. Um but I think it's useful to have a non-Texan come in and look at the history because they can do so with at least some ob- objectivity. Um, I got to know you through that book, which documented um, – it was kind of longer narratives and histories of a few specific um, either artist-run spaces or just more like alternative spaces. Um Talking about the Orange Show, where you now work. Talking about Natsuo, Jim Pertle's bar downtown in Houston, which is still around. Um, talking about uh, Tiempolo, which was uh, Nestor Topchi's uh, alternative space that ran for a while in Houston. And 
So you did that book, and then you published, when we had you earlier on Art Dirt a couple years ago, you published Collision, which, could you talk a little bit about that book and that project and what you were really trying to look at? Yeah, sure. Well, Collision was, uh, I call it a social history of the art community here in Houston. And I focused on the years 1972 to 1985, because I feel like that was a real distinct era of growth. But uh, really, I went all the way back to 1836. Uh, to to get into the background. And, uh, you know, you mentioned me writing this book as an outsider. And at first, when I was thinking about doing it, I really worried that maybe this wasn't my book to write. There were all these arts writers who had been covering the beat for a long time. Uh, but uh, then I convinced myself that maybe I was the ideal person to write about it because I, I didn't really have a, an agenda at all. And really, I came to that book uh, as a journalist. I'm a journalist. I'm not an art critic at all. That's that's not what I do. I'm not interested in theory. I'm interested in people and their stories and uh, why why creative folks do what they do. It's not always obvious why they do what they do. Yeah, I feel like dissecting that, sometimes it's a little easier and sometimes it's a little, it's kind of opaque <laughs> as to what's really going on. Well, and that I feel like that brings us to this book that came out earlier this year. So the book is called Impractical Spaces, Houston, an anthology of artist-run galleries, occupied warehouses, cooperatives, pop-ups, and other ad hoc venues. Maybe that subtitle isn't necessarily – but, you know, that's what the book's about. Um, so it's combined with, like, you have a kind of a longer introductory narrative about Houston and about Houston's artist-run spaces and that digs into a little bit of the history with some specific examples. But the book is an anthology. It's an almanac of these spaces, primarily as told to you by the people who either – uh, founded them or were intimately involved with them. Um, there's a few narratives that you have kind of written either because a space has changed so much over time that, you know, just talking to the founder wouldn't be quite sufficient. Um, or there's uh, some of the cases where uh, the founder either may have passed or they aren't reachable or for whatever reason, but the space was deemed kind of important enough, quote unquote, to be included. Um in this, would you talk about a little bit about how this book came about? Because artist-run spaces are something, I mean, they're very near and dear to my heart. I, I think they're the place where a lot of the, I feel like this term sounds so cliched now, but it, it's where the avant-garde stuff happens. It's where, it's where people are willing to open their apartment gallery for one night only and where the real nitty gritty of the art community can really kind of come and be a part and reflect on itself uh, because there isn't that commercial requirement or expectation. There isn't a nonprofit institution needing to stay accountable to someone. It's basically all of these things are at people's whims. And in just my short time with glass tire short seven years now, I know across Texas and including across Houston, I've seen a ton of spaces come and leave and change and morph. And I mean, some of the spaces in these book in this book um, have a one year lifespan. Some of them have, you know, like only two shows associated with them. But OK, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. So so backing at, backing up, 
tell me about Impractical Spaces and about how this Houston anthology ties into the larger project, because the larger project is something that's been going on for a little while now. That's right. Well, the Houston edition uh, would never have happened if it were not for Glass Tire. Oh, you're kind. When I was uh, browsing around one day and I saw an announcement from the uh, founders of this project, uh, Patty Johnson and her colleagues with Impractical Spaces, the National Impractical Spaces, uh, just... I guess was putting the word out to different communities across the country, letting them know of their work. And the idea was they started with a DC edition that was a a kind of, you know, a template for for what this book series is supposed to be. And I think the original title was uh, We Are So Not Getting Our Deposit Back. Yeah. Uh, which, uh, funny title and, and uh, apropos. Uh, and uh, so uh, obviously they were looking for people to, to pick this up in other cities around the country. The idea was to explore these kind of cities that were, or these kind of art spaces operating outside of New York and L.A., uh, which, you know, get, get all the ink and all the attention. And really, I think for them, Houston was maybe a bit bigger of a city than they were thinking about. Uh, the original uh, consort, the people that I was Zooming with, for about a year. Uh, There was, I think, a book coming together about Portland and about Kansas City and uh, Puerto Rico and... Baltimore, uh, I think. Yeah, maybe maybe Baltimore or maybe there was going to be another D.C. Um, There was one in there, uh, like, I think Grand Rapids, Michigan, I think was one. Uh, And I don't know the status of those books. I believe they're they're probably, you know, still uh, being, being edited and put together right now. But I just... I just jumped right on in. I, I contacted Patty and I told her, well, you know, for Houston, maybe maybe I'm the guy. I've already done a lot of this research. And uh, they were thankfully happy to have me. And uh, we had this, um, well, we had this pandemic a couple of years ago. I don't know. It was in all the papers. Uh, people had to stay inside. It was, uh, it was a mess. I don't know if you remember this. Yeah. So this was like a project that I did uh, just to keep my sanity uh, things had died down a little bit around uh, core because we were, you know, we were doing everything online and, and staying away from staying away from the office. And and anyway, it was just a project that I needed to have in my life. It helped me keep in touch with people and have a little have a little thing to do every day. And so I cast a pretty wide net. I did some crowdsourcing early on Facebook saying, well, you know, here's the list that I came up of, came up with of all the artist-run spaces that I can think of. And if I'm missing anything, people, please chime in. And actually what's funny is now that uh, there was a, a hyperallergic article within the past couple of weeks, and now people are revisiting that post from 2020 and weighing in with a bunch of suggestions that are either things that were written about extensively in the book or things that... Uh, had I known about them then, I could have included. Maybe there will be a second edition at some point. Uh, but solicited feedback from the community uh, and uh, used a questionnaire that the national group came up with that really was just a list of the most straightforward questions. Uh, why did you start this space? How much money did you put into it? What were your uh, favorite shows and events? Things like that that could apply to almost everybody. Uh, so I circulated this questionnaire to people who were the founders or integrally involved in the the you know various iterations of these spaces uh, sometimes there was a some a single figure reporting sometimes it was multiple people uh, at any rate it was important to me to get the you know get the voices of these founding members um, and then I did kind of a light edit 
and compiled things together. And as you say, in instances where perhaps the, the founder was no longer no longer alive or no longer findable, but it really did seem to be an important uh, history to get in there. I, I wrote a few of these things myself and an introduction. So I know that you obviously, like you say you had done some of this research before. I imagine some of this overlaps with Collision and I know some of it overlaps with Painting the Town Orange. Yeah. Um, but what kind of, you know, as you pull back and look at all of these spaces together and ask people more or less all the same questions also, I have to think that you start to see either patterns or just things that stick out or things that really surprise you. Like, what were some of those things over this project as you talk to people more? Well, I guess the the major trend, and this wasn't surprising at all, it's maybe actually rather predictable, is you have these arcs that happen with these spaces. And, and you mentioned before some of these spaces were only around for maybe a year, maybe less than a year, a couple of years. And incidentally, if a space lasted for a year, a couple of years, and then the proprietor moved on to do something else, like that is hardly a failure. You know, you can hardly say, oh, well, the thing didn't work out. Although that's actually what some of these people are saying. Well, the thing didn't move out, work, work out and I moved on to the next thing. But I think anybody who can dedicate that amount of time to put something like this together, you know, even if it's liminal, it doesn't last very long, like it's still so important and it still adds something. And, and so the documentation, I think, especially of those places that weren't around for very long, I felt was, was very important. But you see these, uh, the lifetimes of these places and one thing happens or another thing happens. Either the person gets bored or the person gets burnt out or the person gets there's another opportunity in another city and they move on to the other thing and then the space is done. Sometimes the space lives on with other people. They get tired of it. They pass it on to a friend. Maybe it changes a little bit, survives a little bit longer. Anything that lasts for more than four or five, six years, you know, that, oh, hey, you know, we should incorporate as a nonprofit. We can go after grants and things. Okay, well, we need to have a board. And then the first board is maybe friends and friends of friends. And then as the decades go by, things become more and more formalized, which allows an organization to do more, uh, do things that are maybe a little bit more inside of the mainstream. Uh, but maybe there's a sense of risk that gets lost a little bit because you are accountable now to a board and you are accountable to, to funders uh, and things like that. And that's, you know, it's not like a bad thing. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, that's just the way, it's just the way things go. Well, yeah, there's a mindset that comes along with all of that also. And all of those are components or, or components that come before, I think, starting to pay someone a salary. Like once someone is literally accountable because it's their day job to run a space, I feel like that's even maybe even a little farther than putting a board together or getting grants or become – it's like once an individual person is accountable, I feel like if that person has any sense of self-preservation at all, they start to pull back or rethink the – I don't know, the mud wrestling party that they normally would have done and are like, oh, maybe we can't do that. Yeah. And there's just it, – it's a it's a, a reprioritization. Yeah, and, you know, maybe you're, you're trading trading risk for, for stability, which an organization needs if it wants to hang in there and continue their programming. And, you know, I may, I'm not making any judgments about this. We, okay. we, need all, we need all kinds. And as a matter of fact, like, okay, to, just to illustrate this point, in the introduction, I include a, a pretty lengthy quote from 
Really, it's a manifesto that James Searles wrote around the founding of the Lawndale Annex. And what? And for those who maybe don't know or maybe are familiar with the, the modern-day Lawndale on Main Street, it started off as a Schlumberger cable factory that had been abandoned, the, that University of Houston was using as a storage facility. And then when the art department building burned down at the end of 1978, they really had no place for the painting and sculpture department, so they brought the faculty over to this uh, massive old warehouse and kind of apologetically offered it to them. And uh, I think some of them, you know, were did, did not immediately uh, see the possibilities of the space, but Searles definitely did. I mean, he could immediately understand, like, oh, my God, we've got this huge warehouse and nobody's going to be looking at what we're doing at all out here off campus. Uh, and, uh, you know, for me, it's like uh, kind of the quintessential uh, artist space from Houston's history. Uh, just generations of artists that uh, we, we know well now uh, came out of, of the Lawndale Annex. And uh, in this manifesto, James Searle says, uh, hey, you know, we, we've got the museum, we've got the cam, uh, we've got what's going on over in the Rice Galleries, we've got all these established places, and it's crazy to think that they can uh, represent all the various kinds of art that's happening. So we are just helping out, we are providing an alternative, but we're not really, you know, we're not saying that what's happening is bad, we're just saying that there needs to be more art everywhere, and this is, this is how we can make it happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's that's still true. I mean, there is so much art in Houston right now. Like any given night of the week, you could go out and have an incredible art experience somewhere or choose between 8 or 10 or 12 incredible art experiences somewhere, whether in a gallery or at the museum or in somebody's living room or in a bar or wherever. Uh, but there's always room for more, right? Yeah, that's well, that's really interesting. And I think that the Houston the Houston landscape and the Houston ethos of all of this is kind of embedded in our own um, artist-run spaces. Like, I feel like us Texans always like to think we're really special, and that's part of it. And, you know, a little bit of railing against not being in a quote-unquote major center, even though Houston is, you know, in the top five most populous cities in the U.S. Uh, but... But there's a sense of space and of Texanness and kind of everything permeating, even the people I think who move here and are able to really dig into the community and just they, they I think they pick up on that really quickly. Um, can you talk about kind of that that Texanness or that Houstonness that you saw in these spaces? I, I again, I feel like some of it comes not only from the research in this book, but from the amount that you've talked to people in the community, but just kind of how like artist run spaces here might be different from other uh, cities that are going to be highlighted by this series. Sure. Uh, and, you know, to be fair, I have not really spent enough time with the art scenes in these other cities. Somebody from Minneapolis might be tuning into this and hear what I'm saying and be like, yeah, this is just, it's exactly the same as Minneapolis. Yeah. But I think certainly what one thing that makes Houston different, and this is kind of an obvious point, is the whole no-zoning thing that we have here and how anybody can kind of do anything in any neighborhood. For for anyone who may not be a Houston resident yeah. who's listening to this, can you expand on that just a little bit? Because we know it and talk about it a lot in Houston. There was even a 2000, I think, nine exhibition at the CAM yeah. that was called no-zoning that was Houston artists who kind of defied the idea of city zoning regulations because Houston does doesn't really have any, but what do you mean when you use the shorthand of no zoning? Okay, so so there's a, a lack of zoned districts for 
commerce versus residential uh, living spaces here in Houston, which means like uh, one of the places that I used to live is a residential neighborhood that had a huge warehouse, uh, air, air conditioner warehouse right in the middle of it. Or you might have a dive bar in the middle of your neighborhood uh, or like, uh, you know, uh, could, you know, could be anything next to anything in Houston. So it makes the city unpredictable, uh, full of surprises, uh, and you can kind of get away with things that you couldn't really get away with in another city, like the beer can house. Like maybe you maybe you couldn't have that in a different city. Uh, we do have deed restricted neighborhoods here and there, uh, so there's that. But the no zoning uh, aesthetic about Houston really dovetails, I think, too, with kind of a Houston's wildcatter mentality. Like I'm gonna make you know I'm gonna do whatever I want with my property, and nobody can tell me not to decorate my house this way, uh, or put up this fence, or build this structure in my yard, or anything like that. Uh, it's kind of like a kind of a stubborn Texan thing. I feel in a way. Uh, the exhibition that you mentioned, No Zoning, that happened at the camp, and I think you're right, that was 2009, if not maybe 2008. That was Toby Camps's show and extremely influential on me as I was starting to think about uh, these spaces and about the city in general and how it works. So tell me more, well, like with that background, tell me more about how you saw that come out in these artist-run spaces, the ones that were you know, founded in the last 10 years, but also the ones going back to the 70s, 80s, 60s, 50s. This book goes back to I think 47. You talk about yeah. you talk about uh, spaces that were essentially founded in around 1900, which you know the Art League, which isn't today's Art League Houston, but it was it went on to become the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. But the the general index of spaces in this book really go back to I think 47. Well, you know, uh, in in uh, more contemporary times, a lot of these spaces have actually operated in residential properties. Uh, you know, I'm thinking, for example, of uh, the the Gimp Room uh, that was a uh, part of uh, the the Glass Peacock, which was uh, Sally. Glass and Emily Peacock's house, you know, it was their living room, and they then they had this weird garage space in the backyard with a really ugly wood paneled room with just absolutely disgusting shag carpet. Like that was the joke, you know. Like they had this gross old outbuilding behind their place, and they just thought they would do art shows there. And like one of the gallery spaces was was like the little attic that you had to climb up a, a set of rung stairs to get up there. Uh, just weird you know like we all anybody from Houston knows this Austin says they're weird Houston really is weird uh you know like that was a weird place for weird art now okay like so we have a change though uh where if you were around in the 70s 80s even into the 90s uh, this kind of industrial space was plentiful and cheap. That's why you could have a place like Commerce Street Art Warehouse, uh, for just as an example. Uh, you know, what's that building now? I mean, that building's been totally redone and converted, and these are like expensive studios now, unless it's changed again. Uh, but uh, there's, a, there's a value now to property inside the loop that makes it much more difficult for, you know, some random guy to get his hands on a whole warehouse. Now, you might still be able to do something in a living room or in an old retail space, uh, but, you know, not not the huge, vast properties available everywhere uh, anymore. So, so that's been a change. 
I have a Commerce Street artist warehouse adjacent question, uh, but I'm going to ask it to you after we have a quick word from this week's podcast sponsor. All right. Muse on art, the body, and change. Ineri Bagramian Model Vivant an exhibition that the Dallas Morning News calls a, quote, human and industrial mix, quote. See new works by the artist and explore the dialogue with classic masterpieces at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas, including works by Roy Lichtenstein, Aristide Mayol, and Henri Matisse. Plan your visit at nashersculpturecenter.org. That's N-A-S-H-E-R sculpturecenter.org And we're back. Uh, So, Pete, uh, I have a question about art spaces in the East End of Houston. Um, So, you know, just again, to anyone listening who may not be familiar, to kind of give a geography of Houston. You have downtown Houston, which is almost surrounded by this mini loop of freeways. Um, And then you have kind of what people think of as Houston proper, which is surrounded by the 610 loop. Then we have a little more of suburban bedroom communities that are surrounded by the uh, Sam Houston Tollway, which is the outer loop. And then outside of that, we have places like Sugarland, Woodlands, these even farther suburban bedroom communities. Um, A lot of these spaces, if not all of them, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, um, or at least the vast majority of these spaces uh, are located in in kind of that Houston proper, in the inner loop of Houston. Um, And what I was thinking about as I was reading through the book, I I was looking at the addresses and the number of these places that were on like McKinney Street or on Polk Street or in Houston's East End, which again, for any of you out-of-towners, is just east of the George Bound Convention Center. It's like 10 minutes from downtown. It's a big kind of warehouse neighborhood that is starting to be gentrified right now, today in 2022. Um, The process has been going on for a little while, but it's really kind of picking up right now. Like there is nightlife out there. There are fancy restaurants out there. There's bars out there. um, And there's really not a lot of art. Like I feel like even since 2015, when I kind of have been paying a little more attention, I've seen art spaces come and go out there. The one constant has really been Box 13, which is an artist-run um, space in an old sewing machine factory and display room. But even that that's a little farther east than some of these other spaces that are in the book. Um, did you see anything or were you thinking about how kind of geography of these spaces changed over time when you were putting this together? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, you're right when you say there there used to be more things sort of over in the East End because cheaper, more affordable. I mean, like these were neighborhood like the Axiom. I mean, no, nobody wanted to be in the Axiom's neighborhood, like unless you were going to see a show at the at the Axiom. You know, it was kind of a hard scrabble place. Uh, but uh, you know, from from what I hear tell, like the uh, 
Axiom crowd got along really well with the neighborhood. Like people would come out on porches and, and, and hang out with people. And like they enjoyed the fact that there were all these young kids coming into the neighborhood to do something interesting and, and worthwhile. Um, the changes over time, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, something that really surprised me when I got into it is you look at this book and there's really not that many art spaces in the Montrose where you would expect they all would be. For any of you listening, that's basically where the Menil Collection yeah. is in Houston, that general surrounding neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, I guess, you know, that for me, it seems like these places are sprinkled out all across the city. And one of the things that I was trying to find more examples of, or maybe we're going to see more examples going forward in terms of a decentralized art community, something like the A-Leaf Art House mm-hmm. that actually brings the art out, to, you know, even outside the loop and brings it to people where they can actually access it. If we're thinking about equity, like I think that's really what we need more of in Houston uh, because not everybody can afford to take a day off and make their way downtown, especially if they don't have reliable transportation. Like the A-Leaf Art House, like people in that neighborhood, it actually serves that neighborhood. People can just walk or bike down there and have an art experience that, you know, might not be something that would otherwise be part of their day. Uh, and I think that in the future, I, like hopefully that's, that's where the trend goes. Yeah, I know. I grew up in Sugarland, and in my growing up life, I really didn't have a visual art reference point, or at least, you know, an in-person visiting a museum reference point. Like, I think I went to the Science Museum when I was a kid, but we didn't go to the Museum of Fine Arts or the CAM or any of the spaces that were just adjacent to the Science Museum. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, the farthest out space in the book is surely Splendora Gardens, which is all the way outside of Houston. But I included it because I really felt like it was part of the Houston story. For those who don't know, uh, Splendora is a town about 45 minutes, maybe it's an hour north of Houston. And it's where James Searles and uh, his wife, Charmaine Locke, also an incredible sculptor, uh, they uh, bought a huge piece of land out there in, you know, like 1975, 1976, when there was absolutely nothing out there. There's still not much out there, but they've held onto the property all these years. The Searles family moved away to Colorado in the late 90s, but they held onto the land. And in recent years, uh, their daughter Ruby uh, had has brought the space back as a, an arts venue. Uh, I believe it is dormant right now while they are baby raising. Uh, but for a few years, there were a lot of art shows happening there. And they were the coolest shows because you'd go up there and, okay, there's some artwork by James Searles and some artwork by Charmaine Locke. And here's a Sharon Capriva and here's a Burt Long. And then here's all this weird art made by people up in Splendora. They would have these workshops and people would come and make art and then they would do a show out of it. Uh, and for me, that was really like... Uh, what a gift to that community uh, to actually give them an art experience that that nobody else was doing up there and making them come in and feel like they could make art and then have it on the wall side by side with some of the very best artists that have ever come out of Houston. I think that's great. Yeah. And I think there is for anyone listening or who's going to kind of pay attention to the Houston scene over the next six months, I think there is going to be a show that diverse works is organizing at Splendora. Yep. Um, I think this coming spring. Yeah, yeah. 
So uh, you'll be able to visit it uh, through that. People should totally go. It is so beautiful up there. Unspeakably beautiful. Um, one of the things, one of the other things that I noticed as I was flipping through the spaces um, was that some of these early spaces in Houston that were dedicated to like black artists or dedicated to Chicano artists. Um, one of the conversations that I've had with some people in Houston that Alma, the uh, new uh, idea for a complex for Latinx and Chicano visual and performing arts is trying to correct is that other than Talento Bilingue, which is kind of under new management right now, there's not really, there's not like a Chicano art space or a Mexican American art space. Like some of the other cities in Texas have museums that are dedicated kind of more culturally. And we have HMAC in Houston for black artists or African American artists. Um, but we don't have a space like that for Chicano artists. But in the book you have, uh, you talk about the Chicano arts gallery that was on Polk in the East end, which was a uh, Hispanic area still is, but very much was uh, in the year that it was open. But, you know, again, like a two, three year span, 76 to 78. But w- would you talk about some of these spaces like the Chicano Arts Gallery and like um, the Adept New American Folk Arts Center that were dedicated to artists of color in a time when, you know, Houston didn't really wasn't as equitable as it's trying to get to today. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, this is this is in the 1970s, and and times times were very different. But we had uh, incredible black artists, incredible Latino artists here in Houston during that era. Uh, really fantastic, and uh, you know, like like any other segment of the community, it just takes that individual who is willing to put put in the work and uh, leverage connections and for the Chicano Art Gallery really this this amazing guy Joe Bastida Rodriguez uh, that was that was his project and uh, he's a great artist but also just a consummate organizer uh, he he really was able to put together a very robust space there but uh, we, we lost him to uh, I think first uh, Washington DC uh, where uh, he worked for worked for the government actually uh, and then uh, on to to Cal California. So uh, he wasn't here very long. And, and as a result, the, the space didn't really survive. There was another guy uh, working in the early 1980s. His name was Bert Leon Luna. And he was one of the artists that was uh, featured in the Fresh Paint exhibition in 1985 at the Museum of Fine Arts, Houston. And he had an organization called FALA, which was Fine Arts Latina, uh, the Fine Arts Latina organization. And they had an office that was upstairs from Midtown Art Center uh, on uh, uh, La Branche. And uh, he was trying to actually catalog all these artists, uh, you know, discover them across Houston and put a directory together. And he was doing these little package tours where uh, if another uh, metropolitan area wanted to have a, a group of Houston uh, artists, uh, he, he would put together a tour and send it up to Baltimore or, you know, someplace in Mexico or where, wherever. And um, but, you know, again, didn't 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 last very long. Uh, there just wasn't that uh, generational carry through where it was handed off from from one to the other. Uh, so these things have happened in fits and starts. And like you're right. I mean, we are absolutely long due for the kind of museum that you're describing. I want to shift gears a little bit and yeah. use uh, a little bit of time to 
talk about the orange show because the, the orange show is, I mean, it, it's long been a part of everyone in Houston's lives. Um, but for you particularly, I mean, it was in painting the town orange. The book itself was named painting the town orange after the orange show. Um, the orange show it, it's had such a robust history. And I feel like people, uh, you know, this is the whole thing about our histories and our, our local histories that don't really get as well documented. Um, people don't really remember the Orange Show's history. They think of the Orange Show as the Orange Show monument, which, you know, it's it's wonderful to continue to visit, but it's something it's something you could go to every week, but a lot of people aren't going to go visit the monument every week. Yeah. Or it's, uh, you know, they think about it in relation to the art car parade. So it's kind of completely, it's, it's the same idea of like this wonderful, uh, mostly kind of like self-taught making, but it's also devoid of like a space because it's, a parade that people go to every year. Um, And I was so happy to see the orange show hire you because you kind of knew all this history, but also I was excited to see the programming you started to put forward at the orange show because part of, part of it was just before you were hired or a couple years before the orange show bought this big um, outdoor open air warehouse type venue sitting on an even larger plot of land. Um, and there have been multiple things that have happened there. Countercurrent hosted a performance there, um, a performance festival in Houston. Uh, the Zine Fest Houston has happened there a couple of times. Um, countless organizations have used it for exhibitions or fundraisers or, you know, it's just a, it's a cool, big, empty space that you can kind of do anything with. And thinking towards that, the idea that it's a big, cool, empty space you can do anything with, um, I feel like I've seen you really kind of try and bring the orange show back to some of the things that it was doing 15, 20 years ago. Things like hosting musical performances or hosting outdoor installations by artists who are like living and working now. Or can you talk about how in this new role, and if you would also remind us when you came into it, um, talk about kind of your mindset thinking about the orange show and taking its history and combining that with what Houston needs right now. Sure. So, all right. So uh, I first learned about the orange show after I got to Houston and like anybody else, like I probably found some article on the internet somewhere that was like, Hey, here are the five most wacky things to do in Houston. Uh, and so I'm thinking, you know, I probably went over there a couple times and checked it out and, uh, I had been publishing this music magazine and just like writing about music all the time and was really, frankly, getting kind of sick of it and ready to do something else. And so I was just fascinated by the Orange Show and by the Beer Can House and just thinking about these places like, why would anybody do something like this? It's cool, but why? And who would do this? And where'd they, where'd they get all this stuff? And what do the neighbors think? And, and what, you know, what'd they do first? Uh, did it used to be different and then they changed it along the way? I mean, I just had all these questions and you couldn't find the answers to them anywhere. Like the Orange Show is featured in a lot of books, but usually it's like a couple paragraphs of description and then a bunch of pictures and then like a lot of similar sites around the country and the world because there is this connected community of visionary art environments, we call them. So uh, I was thinking, well, you know, maybe this is something I could write and I could do an article for somebody and turned into a book. I just kept writing and kept writing and was very lucky that many of the people who knew Jeff McKissick and knew the makers of these spaces were were still around and, and had the information and wanted to talk. For readers who are unfamiliar real quick, would you just do like a minute 
elevator pitch of like what the orange show is yeah. and just like the founding of it or you know it's a visionary folk art environment but jeff was a postman who you know yeah so jeff mckissick he was a, a real interesting visionary guy he moved to houston in the early 1950s and he bought uh this brand new land over by the uh, gulf freeway which only went as far as telephone road at the time until 1948 and he moved in, in the early 1950s when the neighborhoods branching off were, were all pretty new and he built a he built a house by hand uh, on munger street and then across the street he bought a couple of lots and he started building out this structure that originally was his plant store. He did deliver mail for the post office and his plant store was kind of a side hustle thing that he did. Uh, and at some point he gave up on the plant store. He had written this book in 1960 called How You Can Live 100 Years and Still Be Spry. He typed it up. It was based on his library research. He was kind of like a blogger before the world had blogs. <laughs> and he mimeographed this thing and he stapled it together and he tried to sell it for a dollar. And uh, over time, he began amplifying the message of the book on the walls of this place. Be smart. Drink fresh orange juice. Uh, you know, love oranges and live. Uh, these are the messages that are all over the place. Uh, you know, uh, we care about you. We're glad you're here. These are, you know, it's, it's a monument we feel to good health, but also community care. Uh, and uh, it's a friendly, welcoming place. It's, uh, it looks like I always ask people who come for tours and things who haven't been there before, like, what do you think this place is before we go inside? And people always say, like, well, it looks like, a, you know, like an old circus or an old carnival. And it's got all those elements. It's really festive. It's got the, you know, this demented, weird clown face in it and these fun lines, concrete lions and a weird little steamboat inside a circular pond that's now drain, drained of its water. But uh, we use it as a stage now for performances and things. It's just a kooky, uh, self-contained, self-made world uh, that this guy got up and worked on all day long every day for his entire life. He just sacrificed his entire life to give us this, this message that is presented by The Orange Show. Uh, and uh, he died in 1980, and he had made friends with members of Houston's art community, including Marilyn Oshman. And when he died, he left a note behind saying, if anything ever happens to me, get in touch with Marilyn Oshman. She'll know what to do with The Orange Show. And uh, she sure did. She got, to, got a bunch of friends together, and they put in some money, and they bought that land in 1980 for $10,000 uh, and, and uh, formed a foundation to not only preserve it but program it, which makes it really different from a lot of the art environments out there in other parts of the country and other parts of the world. They might have a little bit of programming, but <clears throat> the Orange Show has always been meant to be a place to bring people together, not really just the place that you show your cousin from Iowa when they come visiting for the weekend. Yeah. Uh, and so that's what happened in the in the early days. Uh, Suzanne Tice, who many people, I'm sure, know from Discovery Green, was the first programming director, and she was that for many years at the Orange Show. And uh, all of the original, or most much of the original audience, much of the original performers, much of the original restoration crew were all U of H kids over from the Lawndale Annex, which was uh, just down the street, pretty much. Uh, and uh, so it was a place where the really, you know, it was a great alternative space for its time. It's where the really weird, bizarre stuff could happen. Concerts, yes, but, you know, they had magic shows and they had all these shows that had people's pets doing weird things. Uh, they had the, you know, uh, Priscilla, the famous swimming pig, came to swim in the pond one time. Uh, and the art car parade that we all know and love. A lot, you know, many people know the art car parade and they don't even know the Orange Show, but that was an, not original. 
originally an Orange Show initiative. The first one in 86 was an international festival, but uh, the Orange Show picked it up in 1988 and has been organizing and, and administering the parade ever since. Uh, it's grown to be, I think, the biggest free cultural event in the city. Over a quarter of a million people go downtown to look at these 250 cars every year. Uh, so uh, uh, it's great. And the thing that ties all these spaces together, the beer can house, which we bought in 2001 after the, the widow of its maker uh, passed away, um, they're handmade spaces. They express a unique personal vision. Uh, they're made uh, using the things that most of us would just as soon throw away. And instead, these people take these common objects and transform them into something wonderful. It's a story of transformation, and that's what we celebrate there. So tell me a little bit with that history what you're looking at now, because you're looking at that early programming and kind of bringing it back because there was a little bit of a fallow period with programming at the Orange Show. Um, And I I see it as kind of in a reemerging phase right now. Yeah, well, I do too. Uh, The fallow period that you mentioned, I would say that those were years of growth for the art car parade. I think they just had all their eggs in the art car basket. Uh, and uh, now there's a, you know it's it's hard work, but there's a lot of muscle memory, uh, and there's a lot of a lot of precedent for how the parade runs. Uh, we're actually adding another similar event. Now we're getting into art bikes, uh, and uh, we'll have an art bike festival, the the uh, second annual art bike festival coming this May, uh, which is you know it's. Uh, cleaner, better for the environment, better for your health, better for kids. Uh, We lower the barrier to participation, right? I mean, maybe these days not everybody can afford to uh, glue cotton balls all all over your car, but you can put some tinsel on your bike for sure, or put some tinsel on your helmet at least, and ride in the thing. It's participatory, the art bike thing. You know, the parade, you're watching it go by and waving. The bike, you can actually hop on your bike and you can join in. Uh, so, uh, so that's a development. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, there's, there's a new administration there. Our director, Tommy Ralph Pace, uh, came over from Miami. He had previously been at the ICA Miami, uh, and they hired him, uh, in early 2021. And then we met a couple months after that. And, and of course I was like, uh, well, you know, if I were you, I'd be, I would talk to this guy and that guy, and you should work with these people and those people. And, and the next thing I knew I was, I was Offered a, offered a job, uh, which was has been a thrill for me. Uh, it was great working for the, the core residency program for people who don't know. Just uh, really a remarkable program, and I met so many wonderful artists, and I uh, loved working with Joe Havel and Mary LeClaire. Uh, but to get in on the ground floor of the rebirth of this organization has has really been amazing. Uh, and there's been a, there has been a mandate to bring back the programming and uh, connect it with previous generations of programming at the Orange Show. Uh, There were a lot of concerts that happened there, like between kind of like 2005 and 2012, kind of that era, like bands you would play, like Daniel Johnson, Beach House played there. Can you imagine Beach House at the Orange Show? Uh, Kind of mind-blowing for me. Uh, Who else? Bonnie Prince, Billy, uh, Joanna Newsom, like all this great stuff. Uh, this guy, Adrian De La Cerda, I think, was responsible for, for bringing a lot of that. He was, you know, like he was some kind of future predictor. I mean, he, he knew who was going to 
be big and great. No. Well, a lot of that was kind of South by Southwest spillover also. You're correct. You That is how a lot of that stuff happened. Um, God, Bill Callahan. I'm just like keep think, thinking of names. But, you know, for anybody who's ever actually been to the Orange Show to see music there, like it's magic. When we get that place lit up at night and you're seeing one of your favorite bands there and the weather's good, like it's better than any club or, you know, Dunkin' Donuts arena that you could ever go to. Well, part of that's because whenever you visit the Orange Show, there there are clear stage spaces. There are places that are meant to be amphitheater like spaces and opposed as opposed to like other folk art environments, which, you know, a a lot of which are just like uh, heavily decorated spaces like the Orange Show is that. But it has this other function that just was dormant or that if you just visit on, you know, any given Tuesday afternoon, you don't get to fully experience what it was like the function of what it was meant for. Yeah. And it was meant for that. Jeff McKissick, he wanted to offer you a show. You were supposed to come at you. We'd pay your dollar and you'd fill in your little ballot where you would say yes or no. This is the greatest show on earth. And Jeff McKissick is a incredible building genius. And then you'd uh, sit in the amphitheater and look at the pond. And, and what was supposed to happen was, Jeff had a steam engine that was supposed to push this pond around the water in circles and there were these wind up frogs that were supposed to be doing this thing on the deck of the boat and this was the show that you were supposed to experience and upstairs there's a second stage called the sideshow stage and there was supposed to be a beautiful woman playing the organ and a young boy would come out and tap dance and then Jeff would come out and give a little lecture on the health benefits of the orange I, you know I would like to see that Uh, So uh, we still use it as a performance space. And to illustrate your point, all these nooks and crannies and alcoves and balconies and things, uh, we've been doing a recurring monthly performance art series there. This is the the, uh, uh, brilliant idea of uh, Alex Lachin, who is a wonderful artist in town and a friend of ours and somebody who proposed doing this series. uh, It's a performance art series. And people come in there and do durational performance art using these nooks and crannies uh, and uh, actually bringing the monument to to life uh, in a certain way. Uh, and uh, it really does get us back to the early days of Orange Show programming, and it allows you to experience the site in a new way. We also did an art show this past year called Temporary Contemporary 2. Uh, name actually changed a couple times, but uh, I worked with this guy named Danny Kirshen. He's just this brilliant guy. He used to be involved with the Orange Show back in the early 2000s, and he, he did the original Temporary Contemporary show in, I think, 2005, in which he invited uh, contemporary artists from the community to come in and put uh, removable installation pieces inside the Orange Show. Nothing that you were going to put any nails on the wall, but things that could, you know, rest in different places and be seen. And I just thought that was such a cool idea. And I tracked Danny down. He lives in Virginia now, but he's got family here. So he came back for a little while and we worked on the show together. He really did most of the work and and picked a lot of the artists. Uh, And for me, like it was a really, really great way to activate the Orange Show. You're right when you say if you come to the Orange Show once, why do you really need to go back unless you're bringing your sister who's visiting? Uh, But 
if we can always be offering some something fresh and unexpected there, uh, well, there's lots of reasons to come back now. As a matter of fact, I've had a lot of people say to me, like, oh, my God, I've been to the Orange Show uh, more times in the past uh, six months than I've been in the past 25 years. Yeah, I, I think that's really that, – that's been the benefit of this. And, I mean, making people see it in a new way yeah. also. Um, so y'all just kind of finished up a – full season of programming um, with Bread and Puppet Theater, which goes back to your Vermont roots um, and was, you know, a huge performance of a theater with huge puppets. There's no accurate way, I think, for either one of us to describe what it is. You really, if you're listening to this, you just need to Google Bread and Puppet Theater and take a look. The puppets themselves are amazing. Um, I know y'all have art car and art bike coming up, but is there anything that you kind of have on the horizon or if nothing specific or you don't want to leak details yet, uh, just things you're thinking about that you're excited about? Sure. Well, we, we are just getting our, our 2023 schedule together uh, and uh, a lot is still up in the air. We've confirmed a couple things for spring. We're going to have this guy. He's been to Houston before. Actually, he's just been here recently. Tatsuya Nakatani. He's got a, a gong orchestra uh, that uh, he brings around to, to various parts of the country, and it affords the opportunity for locals to get involved. That's, okay, so just to pause on this, like that's one of the things that I'm looking at all the time is opportunities for people to get involved, not just as spectators of a show, but if people can have direct personal experiences with the artists that we bring. For example, we had this guy, Lonnie Holly, not too long ago. He came in September, uh, early October, and uh, he was with us for three days. And for two of those days, he did an intensive workshop with these 10 university-level students that came from U of H, Rice, HBU, TSU. We had somebody from uh, Project Row House's career training program. And these artists had never met each other before, uh, but they worked together and with Lonnie for two days to transform this uh, truck depot space you were mentioning before uh, into an environment uh, of its own that wound up being the stage setting for Lonnie's concert at the end. Uh, and uh, these 10 artists are keeping in touch. I think they're working on another project together. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's fair to say that it changed the way some of them thought about art making. Uh, so it is that trans, uh, transformative experience that we're seeking. With Bread and Puppet, uh, we did a workshop that was uh, partially underwritten by uh, Rice Vada. Uh, the day before, and uh, so a lot of the performers you were seeing at Bread and Puppet were uh, were locals who had been taught how to be in the show just the just the day before. Uh, so that kind of thing, where you can actually be part of the art rather than just a passive spectator. Mm-hmm. So the Tatsuya Nakatani Gong Orchestra. If any listeners out there are perhaps interested in being instructed in the proper ways of bowing a gong for a performance on March 25th, uh, should should get in touch. Uh, another one that I'm bringing in the spring that's uh, pretty much confirmed or all the way confirmed, I would say, is uh, this guy, Eugene Chadbourne, uh, who's an incredible musician who's been in and out of various rock country jazz scenes over the decades. Uh, he's uh, completely original. Uh, he's not only coming to do a concert, but uh, he'll also do an art show uh, of his own self-trained works. Uh, he also makes all of his own uh, record packaging. I mean, these things are sculptural works in and of themselves. Uh, so he fits very well with the Orange Show aesthetic, uh, I think, as well. With that, uh, if you, listener, are interested in learning more, you can always 
visit the Orange Show's website. You can also visit, what is it, Pete, HoustonArtHistory.com? That's right. Yeah, so if you want a copy of uh, this book, Impractical Spaces, you can find that on there. You can also find copies where at the Menil Bookstore, at Lawndale Art Center. Yeah, uh, con- uh, con- Contemporary Craft Center. Uh, of course, we have them in the Orange Show gift shop. Uh, uh, Hardy and Nance Studios has them now. Um I'm probably forgetting. I'm probably forgetting a couple places too. That's enough. That's a that's varied enough. Uh, Pete, thanks so much for coming on this week. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and we'll be back with the podcast in two weeks. Uh, until then, there's a lot happening. Even though we're inching towards Christmas, so take a look at Glass Tires event listings and go see some art. Thanks to this week's podcast sponsor, the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas, and their exhibition, Neri Bagramian, Model Vivant. The show of new works by the artist has been called a, quote, human and industrial mix, quote, by the Dallas Morning News, and it gives visitors a chance to muse on art, the body, and change. The pieces are also in dialogue with other sculptures, including works by artists Roy Lichtenstein, Aristide Mayol, and Henri Matisse. You can plan your visit to see the show at nashersculpturecenter.org. That's N-A-S-H-E-R, sculpturecenter.org. This podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2022.